40 here. I don't know if I've ever mentioned the excellent podcast Decoding the Gurus by a couple of academics, one Matthew Brown, psychology professor at the prestigious University of Central Queensland. The other co-host is Chris Cavanaugh, an anthropologist, lives in Japan but is associated with Oxford University. And uh, there are a couple of blokes who are pretty centre-left and uh, they decode, you know, the greatest minds, the modern secular guru sphere has to offer, tries to figure out what the hell they're talking about. And so I often get the prompt, including in a recent comment by Art Bell, that I should do another decoding of decoding the gurus. And let me just say that some people are a lot easier to decode than others, right? You don't have to put a lot of work into decode a Ben Shapiro, right? Talk very rapidly, take the most conservative positions possible, and use all sorts of nasty debating tricks, right? That's the essence of uh, Ben Shapiro. Okay, gotta catch this light. Dennis Prager is also pretty transparent. But, uh, some people take a lot more effort to decode. And so the blokes behind decoding the gurus, right, their work is pretty epistemically sound. And suffice to say, I woke up like wide awake at about 1.30 this morning with a couple of ideas rattling around in my head about how to decode decoding the gurus. So. I think I will approach them on point number three of their garometer, which notes that uh, gurus tend to be almost by definition anti-establishment because you're just going to give establishment perspectives, then nothing makes you special. Why are people going to pay attention to someone who's simply giving you an establishment perspective? So if you want a substantial following, right, you have to give something different than what's found in the New York Times and among academic specialists. Okay, so this is what was rattling around in my head, that if our institutions and the establishment is largely captured by the left, would it not make sense anyone who's not of the left to have an instinctive rebellion against the establishment right if you're not on the left why would you not have an instinctive suspicion of our institutions that are largely captured by the left and so one of the raps that uh, gurus puts on gurus is that they often make all sorts of pronouncements without any expertise. But what is the process for establishing expertise? Is it not to demonstrate a willingness to conform to the expectations of a certain group in power whose most powerful members tend to be on the left? And don't you have to conform to habits, practices, methods of speaking, 
a, a disengaged, buffered, reflexive self, right? Putting a great deal of distance between yourself and your instinctual, habitual reactions to things. I mean, this distance between habitual reactions and what you say publicly, right, is almost the hallmark of someone with the, the buffered, disciplined, reflexive, modern liberal left character, the, the courtier morality. So much of success in education is simply becoming good at playing the game, the educational establishment. Right? Many of the ways that you develop expertise is by conforming to all sorts of norms wielded by those with power in your profession. So, for example, as an Alexander Technique teacher, I could not belong to the dominant Alexander Technique Teachers Association if I ever said anything publicly against any particular approach to the Alexander Technique. Right? I have to be in a publicly neutral, value-free my assessment of the various schools of the Alexander Technique. And I'm not allowed to publicly criticize uh, other teachers and other approaches to the Alexander Technique. And there are all sorts of other restrictions which have nothing to do with excellence, but with professionalizing the discipline of Alexander Technique teaching. So all, every profession seeks to enhance its own claims, its own social standing, above that of competing professions. And you do this by exacting type of discipline on your members so that you present a united front. So it's a little bit similar to when a pandemic strikes. Right? Normally when a pandemic strikes, right, leading government bureaucrats and scientists have meetings, formal and informal, and come to some sort of agreement on what's happening and then making united public pronouncements on what's happening. And this is hardly science, but it effectively carries the mantle of science in the public square so that if you're opposed to what these bureaucrats and their favored scientists agree to publicly present to the public, then you get the label of anti-science. And being a skilled, skilled bureaucratic operator like Anthony Fauci, right, that, that's a very different skill or discipline from being a good scientist. And so being acknowledged as an expert essentially requires that you adhere to the bureaucracy of this particular profession and that you get along with everyone and have your peers they're happy to assent to you being described as an expert because you're one of them and you represent their interests and the interests of a profession usually contrary to the interests of the public at large right doctors keep down the number of doctors to drive up the money that doctors can make uh, lawyers claim all sorts of special privileges for themselves for all sorts of things that non-lawyers could do. 
So Adam Smith wrote in Wealth of Nations, 1776, that uh, seldom do businessmen get together without enacting some conspiracy against the public. And so this would be true for professions and for experts as well. So I think that will be my line of approach to decoding, decoding the gurus. Like how does one become an expert, right? It's not, it's not even primarily displaying expertise. It's usually primarily about learning to get along inside a particular in-group and you know, sustaining the positive opinion of your peers by acting in the group's interests, which are frequently contradictory to the interests of the general public. And of course, that, uh, so I was up at 2 a.m. I just just splurged on exploring these lines of thought. I just delved deeply into my Stephen Turner, philosopher out of Florida, delved deeply into my Ronnie Goldman, conservative claims of cultural oppression, looked up every one of the nine uses of the term experts in conservative claims of cultural oppression, tried to start disentangling an argument. If up at 2 a.m. should open up anti-Judaism, I don't know, I think I read that already. I'm not sure it really adds anything to what I don't already know. Different groups of different interests. So, it's also interesting, I was eating my brekkie, and there's a big article in the Los Angeles Times about uh, someone who was a good friend of mine in high school, one of my top three friends in high school, Rob Stutzman. So he was a year below me. So when I was the sports editor, he was a sports reporter. Uh, when I became, I think, the news editor, he was news editor, uh, news reporter. When I became the editor-in-chief of the high school newspaper, he became the sports editor. And then after I graduated high school, he became the editor-in-chief of the Holman Messenger. And then he went on to become a Republican consultant. And there's a big article about him in the Los Angeles Times about how he's made friends with a center-left Democratic politician who he once assisted in opposing. So Sussman is a moderate Republican, uh, very anti-Trump, who political consultant helped Arnold Schwarzenegger gain political office. And... Uh, Sussman eventually befriended the center-left Democratic politician who he'd once def defeated in an election. And Rob Stutzman is celebrated for his bipartisan civility in this Los Angeles Times column by Mark Barabak. Mark Z. Barabak is the very same Rob Stutzman I knew in high school. He was always civil. I never heard anyone hate Rob Stutzman. He always colored inside the lines. He was always willing to play the game as decided by the powers that be. He supported our major institutions, wanted to work within institutions, which he has done. Uh, very predictable, 
person, like he was a solid bloke, you could count on him. Right? Predictability is a really important trait if you want to maintain friendships and relationships and a marriage. So after high school and college, he got married, he had kids, he moved on up, he worked through the institutions and became you know, the very established power play that you would have expected back in high school. Back in high school, I was always, not always, I was frequently challenging authority. So we both shared the same journalism teacher, Robert Burge, who was a great gentleman. When I graduated high school, Bob Burge wrote in my high school yearbook that no other student had ever challenged him as much as I had. So I was always the rebel. I was often saying things in poor taste. I was the one who like led a group of blokes in the summer of 1983, like in the San Francisco's Tenderloin, you know, looking for a porn theater. And so it's no surprise that Rob Stutzman would go on to thrive within the system and be appalled by Donald Trump. It's no surprise that I would grow up to work largely independently outside the system, frequently attacking the system, uh, getting on board with the Trump train in 2015. And Trump put uh, three conservative judges on the U.S. Supreme Court. So obviously I think I was right in supporting Trump in 2016 and the never Trumpers like Rob Sussman were wrong. But uh, just interesting to see the same character traits that were on display back in high school that have kind of embodied Rob's life and embodied my life as we've gone our separate ways. Then, of course, in the morning after getting my 12-step uh, uh, video that I was watching, and uh, this therapist talked about a sponsee who I presume was a fellow therapist or some kind of fellow professional, I would assume, in a helping profession, who had gotten fired at his job doing an activity that will almost always get you fired at work. So this guy is getting his life back together again, like he's trying to recover what I assume is like sexual sobriety. And he is looking for a job and close of the job, he does not mention on his resume or in his interview why he lost his previous job. And so, as with many people who suddenly take on integrity and embrace integrity, in my view, he took integrity too far. So he lands a job offer, but then he can't sleep at night because he hasn't fully disclosed everything to his new employer. And so in consultation, I presume, with his sponsor, many sponsors would not advise this, he wants to be rid of his anxiety, so he writes a letter to his new employer saying, hey, I wasn't honest with you about this. Here's the real reason I was fired from my last job. So not only does his new employer rescind the job offer. The new employer then takes steps to make sure that this guy loses his professional license. And this happens to a lot of people in 12-step programs, all right? In the desire to get clean, all right, they confess all sorts of things that really perhaps don't need to be publicly confessed and they lose their license, whether it's doctors or therapists or dentists or accountants or lawyers. So it's a very human tendency that once you 
stumble onto and become convinced of some virtue, you take it way too far. So that's why it's certainly a good idea to have sponsors and other people in the program that you can bounce these things off of. And it's not always a good idea to you know, get clean at the expense of destroying your life and possibly the life of your family and those who rely on you, right? You're not your own, to use Christian terminology. There are very likely other people who depend upon you. And if you blow up your professional standing and your ability to land a good job and your desire to rid yourself of anxiety and to get clean, I think that's such a, a wise move. So all things in moderation, including integrity and honesty and transparency. I think, think many times before you blow up your life and take steps that very likely result in losing your professional license. So often people are so desirous of coming clean, they're so set on public disclosure of very embarrassing things in the past that they will inevitably lose their professional license. And often sponsors warn them against doing this. And often sponsees are just so convinced, so intoxicated by the newfound sense of integrity and righteousness that they unnecessarily, in my view, completely blow up their life and lose their license because they can't deal with the anxiety of having fallen short. So one of the great things for me about accepting the first step is that you know, I did not choose my various emotional addictions or compulsions or maladaptive responses to reality, so I don't have to berate myself for having them. It's my responsibility to make amends. And there's another thing that bugs me. Making amends has nothing to do with saying I'm sorry. Making amends has to do with you acknowledge the harms you've done other people. So this is not infractions that you've committed against the code. This is concrete harms that you've done to other people. So if Elliot you know, Luke is a pompous, that doesn't do me any harm. If half delusional fan these days, that doesn't do me any about them. All sorts of infractions are very small, but necessarily don't do any harm. So the purpose of the mindset is to make amends for concrete harms you've done in people's lives. Making amends is not about saying I'm sorry, it's about budging the harm that you've done to someone, except when to do so it would harm them or you, and then taking steps to try to reduce that harm, to try to you know, clean up your, your mess that you've created. But there's very little to do, if anything, to do with saying, I'm sorry, right? That is just a gross perversion of the 12 steps. To just carry on, oh, I'm so sorry that I cheated on you. I'm so sorry that I stole from you. I'm so sorry that I lied about you. I'm so sorry that this is, right? That's not making amends. That's no fair dinkum ninth step, mate.